Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is Driven Minds, a Type 7 podcast. In this series, we talk to our cultural heroes to learn how they navigate through challenging periods of their lives. By sharing our stories, we hear ourselves and others, our thoughts, our worries, our insecurities, and only then do we realize that we are never as alone as we think we are. So when I was growing up in New York City, I lived for sports and skate parks. I'd spend every weekend throwing around a baseball with my wonderful and supportive father. But I'll never forget when in an attempt to compliment my softball prowess, he said, you throw like a boy. I was around nine or 10, and that was the first time gender identity entered my mind. I identified as a girl, and I was damn good at baseball, if I do say so myself. So why was it a compliment to throw like a boy? Like, what talent should boys have that girls shouldn't, you know? And that's just one example of the gender rhetoric we unquestioningly grow up with. And whether we want it to or not, it deeply affects how we relate to both ourselves and the world. Our guest today, Justin Baldoni, had a similar reckoning when he questioned what it means to be quote-unquote man enough in a TED Talk that went viral in 2017 and unpacked it even further in his compelling new book, Man Enough. I first saw Justin as the male lead on the hit show, Jane the Virgin, but he's also known for his work behind the camera as the director of Five Feet Apart and Clouds, which are honestly two movies I'm too scared to watch because... They deal with death, and there is nothing more triggering for me than my own mortality. I am working on all of this with my therapist. When I read Justin's book, I was honestly shocked to learn that men were so affected by body image issues, imposter syndrome, rejection, like all the subjects that I felt had always been relegated to women's issues. Anyway, in our conversation, we get deep into all of that plus more. So before I spoil anything, here it is, my conversation with Justin Baldoni. Thank you so much for giving us the day before your book launch. Like, I can't even imagine <laughs> things must be somewhere north of chaotic over there. It's it's less chaotic and more uh, emotionally chaotic. Right. I would say. Yeah. I don't think it's like, it, it, there's not like chaos here. My kids are in school, you know, my day is okay. scheduled, you know, back to back. Yeah, but that's not the chaotic part. The chaotic part is like my internal demons and all the stuff that's coming up, you know, before your book goes out in the world. You're tempting me. What, tell me about the demons. What's what's coming oh, up whoa. for you? Wow. Are we, are we going there? <laughs> I mean, listen, I honestly, first thing I really <laughs> want to say. <laughs> I know, right? All right, you say that and then we'll go to the demons. <laughs> I, I loved your book and I learned so much from it. Oh, did you read it? I mean, of course I read it. Yes. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> I always love it when people read books. That means a lot to me. Are you kidding? It's literally tagged and margin noted. And for listeners, I'm holding up the book and showing Justin what I'm talking Ooh. about because he clearly needs proof Gee, here. I want to talk about all that. I, I do talk too. About- I do too. The main thing I loved about your book that I want to say before we dive in here is how much time you spent talking about your childhood and the effect it had on you. Because I feel we're expected to just like move on from our childhoods once they're over. But 
they cut so deep and affect us well into our adult years. And in your case, I'm curious if there was one memory or experience that you went through that shaped you more than others. Oh, man. I mean, I write about a lot of a lot of it in my book. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my therapist the other day. And by the way, when I say I'm talking to my therapist, it's not like, you know how therapy can also be trendy? It's not that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I was talking to my therapist. It's not, you know, there's like this thing in, you know, in Hollywood <laughs> where it's like, oh, my therapist told me. No. Uh, yeah. therapist, therapy sucks. It's not fun. I know. Uh, it's, it's the hard work of hard work, right? But, but, totally. I, but this last, when was it? Friday. I see, I see him on Fridays. Um, a memory came up for me. I was about seven, seven or eight. And I remember getting in like an argument with one of my, one of my like best friends. And again, like, I think when I was like in five, six, seven, eight years old, I had these friends that were like, I was with every single day and then those friendships would end. And then like, you meet mm-hmm. another friend and you're with that friend, like every single day. Um, at the beginning of my codependency, clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But I remember this friend being mad at me for something. And I don't remember what he was mad at me about. But I remember him walking away and saying something mean like, this is why you don't have any friends or just something. And as he walked away, I looked out my window, my front yard. And kind of like how dogs watch their owners leave, you know? And like they're <laughs> yeah. by themselves. You've seen those pictures of like, animals and they look out and they just look out and they're like, you're leaving me. And I remember looking out my window as he walked away, he lived like three blocks away. Mm -hmm. And my internal thought was, there goes my last friend. That's heavy. And I still, I still remember that today, that feeling of like, wow, I'm not worthy enough. I'm not worthy enough to be loved by anybody. I'm not worthy enough to have any friends. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and that, that sticks with you. It doesn't just go away. You have to work Mm-mm. like so. And where does that come from? And it comes, it's mm-hmm. obviously started before I was seven or eight years old before that happened. And then that follows you around over the course of your life. Mm-hmm. And you don't just get to gloss over it and be like, shit happens, grow up or grow some balls or stop crying mm-hmm. or all the stuff that we say to, to young boys. You have to honor those feelings. We all have an inner child that is desperately seeking love and acceptance and forgiveness. And you can't even start therapy without acknowledging that, right? You can't even start healing without acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what are you actually healing? Yeah. You know? It's like it's like having surgery and uh and going in and not fixing the broken bone, but just doing stitches on like your skin. Yeah. It's like I'll just do stitches on my skin, but I'm gonna leave the bone broken. It's like, no, it's not how it works. Do you feel you were able to let this go or did, I mean, of course it's a process. Oh no, but... absolutely not. I'm still working on it. I don't, Yeah. I think some people's, some people say it's possible or that you can. I think that it's the kind of thing that stays with you forever. You just learn how to not let it affect you or bother you, mm-hmm. right? You, you gain control over those negative thoughts and those right. patterns, right? Yeah. Um, you, you create and carve out new neural pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, and you retrain your language. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know if I'll ever be over it or, you know, we'll ever let it go. I think I'm in the process of letting it go. But I can tell you right now, like, one, you know, you talked about 
what's happening, like my chaos before the book comes out, a lot of my inner demons, and I call them demons, are those like feelings of unworthiness, right? I often say like, I wrote a book called Man Enough, yet I don't feel man enough to have written it. Mm. And, and And that's why I wrote the book, not as an expert or somebody that's on the other side, but somebody who's in it which is also why it's so uh, hard and can be traumatic for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm, I'm literally saying, okay, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what I've dealt mm-hmm. with. Here's what I'm dealing with. Enjoy, world. I hope, it, <laughs> I, hope, uh, I hope it speaks to you. And the reason I did that is because I, I felt like the book wouldn't have been as interesting or sincere or, or really resonated with people if I wrote about only the stuff that I've overcome. Oh, totally. I don't want like I don't want to read that book. I and yeah. there's there's too many books out there, especially for men that are like, here's here's how you be a great man, or here's ten tips for this. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. every article that's ever existed in every magazine is like, here's how you do this. And I always think about the poor souls who write those articles or those yeah. books, and I always think about them and and what they're like. Like what? It, like great, they just pressed send to their editor after they've written like, here's ten tips to a better bod. And I'm like, yeah, like 10 easy but what steps. Do, but what do their bodies look like? Right. Right. Or like, are they really happy? And yeah. And I think that's one of the problems with our curated Instagram, you know, TikTok culture is that we always broadcast the thing we want other people to um, see. And I'm not interested in that because I don't think that's where the healing happens. I don't think yeah. that we can, I don't think we can heal that way. So I was very, I was very much like, hey, the only way that I can talk to men is if I talk to men from where I am today and not from the other side. And so with that, you're vulnerable. The definition of vulnerability mm-hmm. is being vulnerable to attack, right? And so when you serve up your soul and your guts on like a platter to the to the world, totally. and then it's tied in and then it's tied in with like the illusion of success. Like, mm-hmm. is it gonna be a bestseller and you have to promote it? You have to do all this stuff. It's like, come on. I just want to put it out there. And then if it reaches one person, then great. I don't want all the pressure. And so that's what my demons have been. It's like this strange uh, enmeshment of um, art and commerce and just wanting it to be out in the world to help people. Mm-hmm. You know, I got, a really sweet, I got a really sweet message earlier today from, uh, from a trans man who is reading this book. And he said he was crying all morning and it made me cry because he said it was, the first, it was the first time at 50 years old that he felt seen and uh, there was a book for him and like that just made me cry and I'm like okay you know what that's my one guy yeah that's my one person totally to that point your book is called man enough but even as a woman I identified with so much of it Mm -hmm. yet I've never talked about any of the issues that you brought up in the book with men and Justin like I talk to people for a living I've been a journalist for eight years, but I've never talked about body image with men, only with women. (laughs) And I realize how short-sighted and naive that might sound, especially having a mental strength podcast. But I also feel like it's reflective of where we are as a culture. Mm. I really believe men were more or less indifferent about their bodies because no one ever talked about it. And I know you've worked through a ton of body image stuff, yeah. but how does it manifest now? I would say that if you scroll through your Instagram feeds mm-hmm. and you look at a lot of these, a lot of these guys, you know, who post shirtless pictures and who are just mm-hmm. always working out 
I would argue that the majority of those men have a version of muscle dysmorphia. And what we don't think about or talk about is that men are not doing it also for women. Mm -hmm. Men are not trying to be buff and be ripped for to like get women, right? Possessive, get women. Right, We're right. doing it for the acceptance and for the respect of other men. And that's why it's not talked about. Right. If it was really all that bullshit about like, get broad shoulders, it's going to make her like you and all that. No, that's not what we know already. We've had enough conversations and there's been enough research to show that like at the end of the day, women are not going to choose a life partner based on their body. True. Right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, it comes down to why we work out. We work out to be strong. We work out to protect, right? Um, we work out to gain respect because that's, you know, we want to be big and strong and we want to be the alphas. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, like that's driving us. And, that's, and that thing that's driving us has been driving us since we were kids. Yeah. Right? It's the same reason like the guy who was the biggest bully had the most respect from the other guys. Mm -hmm. But what we don't think about is that that bully was also so lonely. Yeah. And sad. That bully was probably being, you know, abused or beaten or or ignored at home. And he and yeah. he was hurt and hurt people hurt people. But the second that bully was bullied by somebody else, that bully lost all of his friends because that bully hadn't forged any real long-lasting friendships that were based on the things that we build friendships on. So then you right. grow up and uh, you know, and that same thing that's underneath us, that same want and need to be accepted by other guys, we then kind of inject into our physicality our bodies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we want mm -hmm. our bodies to look a certain way. Not because women are going to, you know, drool over us. Sure, some of that happens. That happens on social media. We get extra likes. Women will comment and be like, oh my God, you're so hot or thirst traps and all this stuff. But really, it's about respect from dudes. Yeah. And I've noticed, and even in my own behavior, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, when I'm feeling the most insecure about my body is when my, is when the algorithm, oh, I that fucked up algorithm, excuse my language, <laughs> uh, reminds me of how, of how I'm feeling about my body because my feed is all shirtless dudes. How does this algorithm work? Because mine is also like all women, like basically well, because, naked women. As an example, like I'll, I'll, I'll click on a dude who's doing a workout. Mm -hmm. And my thought is like, that's going to motivate me to go work out. And then the algorithm thinks that I like that. So it sends me more of it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, and it's so funny. So when I'm feeling the worst about myself, that's when I'm seeking motivation. And so I'm watching or I'm clicking on these videos or these pictures of, of men who are shirtless and working out and like standing by the mm -hmm. beach and doing all this stuff. Cause my thought mm -hmm. is like, well, I want to do what they're doing so that I can look like that. Yeah. Right. So again, that's like another man gaining the respect from other men. Yeah, But in reality, all it's doing is making me feel worse about myself. And then I don't get into the gym. Mm -hmm. And that's what the, and that's the thing. That's like the dark side of the algorithm is it right, tells you right. everything that you're not over and over again. So, but back to the body image issue, um, we don't talk about it because if we talked about it, then we would lose that respect from the men we're trying to impress. You're impressing the wrong men. <laughs> I want to go back a bit to what you said um, about believing in yourself and patterns and all of those things because you're in Jane the Virgin, which is how I first got acquainted with you. Huge hit, five seasons, but you've also been so open about imposter syndrome. So I'm curious how that manifested for you on set. I have it everywhere. <laughs> Do you really? <laughs> oh my God. I mean, you have imposter syndrome when you write the book. 
believe imposter syndrome when I direct my movies, right? Mm -hmm. I think, well, first of all, imposter syndrome is far more common than we realized. It was a coined phrase by women, actually, I believe black women. And it's never kind of been socially acceptable for men to feel. Um, And of course, why would we? Because we're sitting at the top, you know, of the hierarchical ladder of the patriarchy. So how could we have imposter syndrome when the world is designed for us kind of thing? But um, that also, I think, is partly why it's so real. So for me, imposter syndrome shows up in that I didn't go to college for acting or for directing. I taught myself, um, you know, and so now here I am, you know, as an example, I get a lead role on a, you know, in a big show and I show up to set. You want to ask about Jane the Virgin? And I'm intimidated. I'm intimidated by the other actors. I'm, atti- I'm intimidated by Gina Rodriguez, who was my co-star, who 90% of my scenes were with, who is like an acting prodigy. And I don't want to be the weak link of this brilliant show. Right. And so that's, and that's in my body. That's in my, that's in me. So I go home at night and I'm like trying to learn my lines and I'm like super focused. Then I show up the next day and I just, I don't want to disappoint. But what that mm-hmm. does is that um, suffocates the art. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to to be willing to like express that because I was always taught as a man to like show up to fake it till you make it right right and then you'll like you'll figure it out and there's there's parts of that that are true like you can't just walk around with a bleeding heart in this world and like be vulnerable and open to everybody all hours of the day because the world will like stomp all over you yeah and so there's so there's an element of truth to parents and um you know uh, us teaching our kids some of these things because we want to protect them but it's never just black or white and so right. and so for me i had to really learn to ask for help mm-hmm. you know to there's a i talk about a whole story in the book about finally being willing to ask gina how she would do a scene or what she thinks i should do here and it was like this freedom right it was like liberating and that's kind of the the moral of the story of the book is so much of these things are liberating if we're just willing right. to like take that that step into discomfort and right. ask for help or whatever it is. And you're always usually surprised by how you're met with that request, right? Like I'm sure Gina was so grateful and accommodating yeah, and Yeah, helpful. she was like, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> she, yeah. Because what, what, what we also need to realize, especially women are so intuitive and sensitive that they see, you guys see the struggle. So mm-hmm. what, you know, especially in, with partners, right? If you're in a relationship with a man or something and, and like, they're not asking, they're not asking, they're not asking. And you see them struggling with something. By the time they ask for help, you're like, of course, I'll, of course. Yeah. I've been watching you struggle for so long, but I'm, <laughs> but you haven't been open. You haven't been yeah. open. To, I, there hasn't been a space to come in. And then, you know, suddenly uh, when we're let in, it's like, oh, we can exhale. But unfortunately, also, the dark side of this is that as men also, we're, we have been in situations where women battle their own internal misogyny. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't know how to receive a man who is vulnerable. And Glennon Doyle, Glennon Doyle talks about this in Untamed, and it's uh, Bell Hooks writes about this. We have to remember that women and men are brought up in the same system, right? The same mm-hmm. patriarchal system. So mm-hmm. while men are told that we have to be strong, brave, impenetrable, stoic, unemotional, women are also taught that men need to be those things. Right. So when when a man challenges that patriarchal system and is open and, and is vulnerable, many women 
have no clue what to do. Yeah, I think but all of that comes with awareness and and just looking at yourself and what you actually want in a partner. Because I mean, now I think it's the sexiest thing on the planet when a man cries. I only date men that cry easily more than I do. And it's like a prerequisite. It's <laughs> That's like, awesome. I love that emotion, you know, but I, I realize that it's years of unlearning. And the people that do cry, the men that do cry are always consistently the ones that work on themselves. Yeah. I'm also curious how you navigated being an actor in first and foremost, being a sensitive man, just going through castings and auditions because, I mean, I remember I was like 12. I read for like two parts for fun in my life. And I'll never forget sitting in a room, like a waiting room with girls that looked exactly like me. And then you go into the audition room and there's like these hangry casting directors and like a camera in your face. And it was just so much. It's terrible. And I just, like, what was your experience going through that? And like, did it whittle you down at all? Because casting directors like decide not to cast you for the dumbest reasons that have nothing to do with your talent, right? Yeah, it's really tricky. What I've learned over the years is it's never about you. And that's helpful. Like, I know now on the other side, now as a producer and a director who I'm, you know, casting multiple things right now and I cast my movies, mm-hmm. that it's not about the actor. Um, it's about this image that I have in my head for the role. And so what I always try to remind actors is it's not about them and it is about them. It's not about them and that there's nothing you could have done better to get this part. Right. This part wasn't made for you. However, it's brutal. And it's one of the reasons why most of my business and career now is not reliant on acting because I'm the kind of person that gets really excited about every audition if it's the right audition. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put my soul into this. And recently I had an audition and I haven't really auditioned in seven years, six years. Uh So I was like, this is going to be fun. I'm a director now. Like, I'm just going to do it. I don't give a shit. I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I found, I was thinking about that audition for like three or four days in a row. That's all I was thinking about. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about all my other work or the movies I'm producing or the movie I'm prep- prepping as a director or my book and all this. I'm like, you know what? I'm thinking about this part. Mm-hmm. And so I filmed this audition and I'm like, okay, now I have to let it go. But I couldn't let it go. Even though wait, I know wait, I couldn't. What do you mean? <laughs> I, well, I, I sent it in. And this whole, like, this whole idea of when you, when you film an audition as an actor, you send it in and then you let it go. Right. If it's meant to be, it'll be. But it doesn't work that way. You think about it all the damn time. Yeah. Unless you have 10 auditions in a day, you think about that thing. And then when you don't get it or you do get it, mm-hmm. you judge yourself and wonder if you could have done it better. And that's human nature. Mm-hmm. I would say if you can, if you really develop that thick of skin just to not be affected at all by not getting a part that you love, then then I don't know if that's the healthiest thing either. Yeah, It's a necessary evil because you're in a business that requires you to develop thick skin. But is it healthy? Is it really the best thing that we can be doing for like these young stars who are going to become like role models to millions and millions of people? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you it's hard. And I know it's really hard for really sensitive people, for empathic people, it's really hard. But it's at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's not about me. That's not why I didn't get the part. It wasn't because right. it wasn't because I'm not enough, if you will. Yeah. But how long did that take for you to see it like that, right? Because I could imagine as a sensitive person, I mean, listen, no hurts. Like when people say no to my podcast, yeah. that's like 
It doesn't matter that they're busy. Like that is a burn that goes so deep. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Like, yeah, thanks for letting me know. And I like literally just like crumble on the floor, you know? Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's so funny too. And I actually think about that when I have to say no to podcasts mm-hmm. because, because I know what it feels like, you know, because look, on the other side here, there's podcasts that my publicists were like, we got to know. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, don't tell me that. I don't want to yeah. know. <laughs> Just don't schedule it. You know, there's big podcasts. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not enough to be on that podcast or I'm not enough to be on that Yeah, or whatever that. And because we're human beings and of it course are, no matter how much work you do on yourself, mm-hmm. it's going to hurt. I think the most yeah. important thing is to allow ourselves to feel. And that's, and that's the oh, biggest difference is you're not taught that. I was not taught that as a young actor. I was taught to suck it up and move on. It's not about you and just, you know, mm-hmm. just don't even think about it. And that's not right. You, you know what? Allow yourself to be down for a second. Allow yourself to feel rejected. Yeah. Allow yourself to have those thoughts that make you feel like you're not enough and then move forward. Yeah. And because that, that's, that's the thing is we're not teaching our young boys and girls that it's, well, young girls more so, but not teaching our young boys that it's okay to feel. Yes. And we have to, as adults, allow ourselves to feel that pain and disappointment and of unworthiness and then move on. In terms of opening up, you've been so forthcoming about what you went through in terms of your addiction to porn. Mm -hmm. And seriously, thank you for your vulnerability because even though porn is the one thing that everyone has seen, right, both men and women, We literally never talk about it. Mm. And I'm curious where you stand on this because I feel in general, there's this kind of veil of shame enshrouding sex in America. Mm -hmm. And the shame conditioning around sex starts so early. I mean, I remember when I was around 10 and my dad took me to see Titanic and he covered my eyes during the sex scene. So my feedback here is that sex is bad. This is not what good girls do. And I swear, Justin, the whole sex is bad maxim took me over a decade to unlearn until I truly felt comfortable exploring and embracing my sexuality. It's really tricky. It's generational. It's also cultural, you know? Yeah. It's taboo. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of reasons. The porn thing is really complicated. Yeah. Because... This generation and my generation are the first generations to ever have on-demand access Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. videos and porn. Yeah. Right? Like, I remember being seven, eight years old, and I talk about this in the book, and walking to school, when school was like 10 blocks away, and we would walk, and there's, there's newsstands. And, you know, the penthouses are like, the Playboys are covered. Right. Right? Shameful. So what are we telling Young boys and girls were saying that, like, okay, um, those things are not for you to see. So right. we're sec- because we sexualize them, right? But yeah. if you if you go to places in Africa, some matriarchal societies where breasts are not sexualized, mm-hmm. you have a very different experience, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all it's context is everything. Yeah, and then and then with porn, look, porn is like porn is a massive business. And we have to remember mm-hmm. that it's a business. Yeah. And anytime there is a business, there's manipulation, mm-hmm. right? So it's the same thing. Like we look at like dating apps are a business and all of these things are 
forging new neural pathways in our brain and teaching us something. And they all use the same technology. It's science. It's, it's random reward theory. You don't know what you're going to see next. It is constant dopamine hits and dopamine triggers. Right. And so what we have is like you have, you have this massive multi-billion dollar industry mm-hmm. and you have all of the majority, I would say, of its users using in secret. Mm-hmm. Was that hard for you to share and say out loud? It was one of the hardest. It was one of the hardest things for sure. It was actually one of the reasons why I talked about in in my TED talk. I talked about taking mm-hmm. my guys on a trip to Mexico, but I but I wasn't willing then to share why I wanted to take them to Mexico, and I wanted to take them to Mexico because I was like, I wanted to ask them, <laughs> Hey, do any of you guys struggle with porn? <laughs> you would think that I could have that conversation in like three seconds over text message, right. but I couldn't. I was paralyzed because here I am, a spiritual guy. I'm called a feminist. I'm working for gender equality. I'm speaking up on behalf um, of women and marginalized groups. And yet here I am engaging in a behavior that I feel shame around. Um, and, um, and also that I believe has a direct correlation to rape culture. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I was never... I was never somebody who um, who had the experience with their porn that it escalated into like more bigger things and it, you right. know, viol- violent things and um, and I'm very blessed that it actually didn't get in the way of my uh, intimate connection with my wife. But what it did do was it occupied my brain mm-hmm. um, for far too much time, especially yeah. when I was in a place of doubt or when I was feeling a sense of. Um, uh, when I was feeling insecure or like I was questioning my worth and that I knew is not like, there's like, that's not a positive behavior. I don't have an issue with porn in general because there's a lot of marginalized groups that for the first time when they've watched porn, they've seen themselves. There's kinds of, and porn is changing. There's kinds of porn that can be, you know, that can be healthy. Some couples enjoy it together. I don't want to get into any of that stuff. My issue is my relationship to it. And I know the relationship that a lot of men have to it and it's unhealthy. Yeah. It was something that I've heard from the girlfriends of some of my guy friends. And they were like, I just wish he'd get help for it. I don't know why he's so ashamed. So it was so crazy hearing it from, and beautiful to hear it from someone who's a man and actually willing to be open and vulnerable about something that is so common amongst men. And that's the rallying cry of this podcast is to, you know, yeah. we only, we have to own our stories unless our stories end up owning us. So, well, it's, you know? I mean, we're talking like in the upper 90s percent of men um, watch porn regularly, yeah. right? It's some crazy statistic and and yet no one's talking about it. Yeah. And what is that doing to our brains? What is that doing, you know, and especially as young boys, and you brought up something earlier about you and your dad, and thank you for sharing that. I remember nobody talking to me about sex. Yeah. So it was like, it just wasn't talked about. So how do we learn about sex as young boys? We learn through porn. We learn through stories from other boys. That, and also like you learn from walking past a newsstand and seeing the porn covered, right? Like it's really, it's the subtle things that you learn about sexuality from, like by not talking about it, that's saying something yeah. as loud as talking about it. And then if it, and if it is brought up, there's an embarrassment, right? It's like- Yes, a shame. It's a, especially in really religious households, it's a shame. Oh, that's not for you or don't look at yep. that. Or, and when in reality, yeah. I think we're, we're missing out on a huge opportunity to teach our children about mm-hmm. procreation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, it's like who decides when a child is old enough 
to understand that people have sex. And, and I don't know what the answer is, but I know that it's mm-hmm. far younger than what's happening today because a lot of parents are like, you know, nervous about my book for their kids because I talk about it and I ask mm-hmm. how, how old their kids are and they're like 14. And I'm like, oh, honey, you're a 14 year old. Give him the book. ASAP, yeah, he knows like, everything. <laughs> your 14-year-old is is probably watching darker, crazier stuff than you've ever seen in your entire life. Yeah. And yeah. and at 10 years old, I was introduced to like Playboy types of porn. And now it's a whole nother world for yeah. these young kids. And and I want to just make sure that 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 parents and men can look at that. And at the end of the day, here's how you know if something is a healthy behavior or not. If mm-hmm. you can engage in a behavior, and this is straight from my from my therapist, right? If you can like engage it. in a behavior out of joy and afterwards feel joy, then it's fine for you. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. engage in a behavior that you have anxiety around or you feel or you have self-talk and you're like, oh, I don't know, this doesn't feel right, or like, oh, I don't want to, or I shouldn't, and then you engage in it. And while you're engaging in it, you don't feel good, and then afterwards you feel shame, it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's pretty so simple. simple. It's right? so simple. I have to be honest that I, I'm actually too scared to see your films because reading the synopsis for Clouds and also for Five Feet Apart, <laughs> that's enough to make me cry. And I know you say that we can live more enriching lives by understanding and thinking about and connecting with our own Mortality. mortality. Yeah. But it is alarmingly hard to yeah. do. Alarmingly hard. And because it's real. <laughs> it is so real. There's nothing more real than the fact that all of us are going to die one day. Yeah. There's nothing more real than that. And then that makes us question our existence and this life. And is there another and why we're here? And then yeah. that makes us look at our actions every single day. Yeah. And the truth is, and it's, it can be tied back to the book and masculinity, is that it's very hard to hold ourselves accountable. It's very hard to look at our actions and our lives and think about the big picture and question if we're doing enough or if we're mm-hmm. if we have the right job or if, you know mm-hmm. or if we're spending enough time with our family or if we're doing enough internal work or whatever. All of the things. What I would challenge and what I would argue is that it's not about like looking at that or watching something and thinking about it and wondering if we're enough. Mm. I think it's looking at it head on, mm-hmm. saying this is going to happen one day, right? We've mm-hmm. entered a marathon, whether we've wanted to or not. We have 26.2 miles or whatever it is. And eventually, <laughs> we're going to get to the end of that marathon. So how do I want this race to go? Mm-hmm. And I think it's about not being passive, but active in our own lives. Because right now it's very easy to be distracted all day long and to procrastinate to become the people that we want to be. (laughs) But by checking in and looking um, at our lives and examining our own mortality, we have the choice to be active participants in our own lives. Yeah. And that's what I've seen happen time and time again with my dear friends who've been diagnosed with terminal illnesses is they go from being passive to being active. And if we can be active then we're in the driver's seat Mm -hmm. and we can choose how we react to things. We can unlearn the behavior that we've learned growing up. We can challenge things like the patriarchy as an example in my case and masculinity. We can can go to therapy and challenge our therapist to say, no, hold on a Mm -hmm. second. It is about 
the work that I have, you know, I do yeah. have to get over my childhood stuff. Yeah, but let's talk about it. It's about yeah. it's about being an active participant in this crazy, wild, painful, beautiful thing called life. I have one more question. What drives you? I would say my faith and the thought that one day my journey in this physical world will end and I will be shown, I believe, my life. Baha'u'llah in the Baha'i Faith says you will be, you'll be shown all that your hands have wrought, W-R-O-U-G-H-T, all that you've done. And I want to have lived up to the capacity that was given to me in this life. I don't want to die one day and see that like, oh, what I could have done, what I could have done for the world was this much and yet I only did this much. And that doesn't mean like accolades and awards and follows and like millions of people touched. I mean like my spiritual capacity that I grow and that I detach enough from this world, that I do enough of that hard work of heart work. Was I kind to enough people? Was I kind to myself? Was I of service more than I took? These are the things that I believe in the end mean more than anything. And that's what drives me. That, my friends, was Justin Baldoni. You can follow him at Justin Baldoni and me at Gillian Zagansky. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode, especially if you're a male listener who wants to start a conversation about what masculinity means to you. You can DM me with comments and questions. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a rating on the iTunes store. It helps us out and you will feel good about yourself. (laughs) Right? Is that at all enticing? Anyway, until next time.